Second Peter chapter 1, we begin in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let us hear it. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you alway in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter, and we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention to 
a very specific exhortation that Peter uh, admonishes his readers toward. This is found in verse 10. Look at what it says. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Your calling and election, then, are things that are to be made sure by the Christian. Now, it seems that in many Christian circles today, the doctrine of election is regarded as a deep and mysterious and controversial doctrine. I believe that in the days of the early church, the doctrine of election was held to be something very basic. And just a casual reading of many of the epistles reveals to be the case. You might even call it, I suppose, one of the fundamentals of the faith. So we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that in that verse particular, you have the two ideas coming together of election and calling. Uh, boy, there is a lot that is packed into that verse in Second Thessalonians 2. I commend it to you for further reflection. Maybe we'll come back and take a, a more a deeper look into it down the road as the Lord leads. Another verse, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. So you find here, don't you, and we could cite other examples uh, from Paul uh, where he cites the doctrine of election as something uh, very basic, something that he addresses very early on in many of his epistles. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 2, Peter writes, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. So Peter is addressing the readers of his first epistle as those who are elect. And in the Gospels, Christ himself, in John 13 and verse 18, where he says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. I know whom I have chosen. 
So Peter and Paul are very much in line with Christ, aren't they, in this matter of election or being chosen. Now when we come to Peter's second epistle, we discover an awareness on Peter's part that his time in this world is just about over and that he's headed soon for heaven. So we read in verse 12, chapter 1, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. So Peter is very much aware. He says the Lord himself had communicated this to him. Your time is just about up, Peter. Your time in this world is coming to a close. Now I know that all the words of the apostles are important. But when you're dealing with a, a man's last words, especially when he's very conscious that these are probably the last words that he would communicate to his audience. Well, those words certainly take on an even greater significance. And you see the emphasis in the verses we just read that Peter places on remembering certain things. That's something, you know, that preachers and Christians do well to keep in mind. The ministry of the pulpit is not to function the way the Greek philosophers in the book of Acts functioned, which was to be constantly introducing some new thing. The ministry of the pulpit is to serve the purpose of reminding Christians and reminding them again and again of certain basic truths and the practical applications that arise from those truths. This is not a position that you want to be in for introducing innovations, in other words. And that always seems to be a temptation to those in the ministry, and I suppose the Christians themselves. And among the things that the Christian needs to be reminded of is his election by God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. It's rather interesting to note, I think, that the doctrine of election, rightly understood, doesn't or it shouldn't lead people to wonder whether or not they're truly saved. The doctrine of election, rightly understood, can be and should be a wonderful source of assurance of salvation for the Christian. And the way this happens is when Christians take heed to Peter's exhortation, 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, where he writes our text again, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. So that's what I want to call your attention to this morning this matter of making your calling and election sure. 
Your calling and election, you see, are things that can be made sure. The word sure in the Greek is a word that means stable or fast or firm. As a Christian, you can and you should have a firm assurance of your salvation, which means in the context of our text, you can have assurance of your election. There's a certain irony, isn't there, to the doctrine of election becoming a source of assurance. And the irony is found in the way that some Christians feel that the doctrine of election takes away any kind of assurance they can have. But we'll see in the course of our study today that far from robbing a Christian of assurance, the doctrine of election can actually contribute mightily to that assurance. I might add, though, that the doctrine of election can and does pull the rug out from under those that are presumptuous about salvation, those that wrongly think that salvation doesn't really have any powerful impact on their lives. The doctrine of election, like I say, pulls the rug out from under that notion. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and yet there are many that profess to believe the gospel who never seem to find its power leading them to a transformed life. Well, let's look more closely then at Peter's exhortation in verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And let's begin this study by considering, first of all, what exactly it is that we're to make sure. What are we talking about? What is Peter talking about? when he says, make your calling and election sure. Two separate things in our text that we're called on to make sure or firm. The first thing you could say corresponds somewhat to your experience. The second thing pertains entirely to something God does. And the way you make the one thing sure is to make the other thing sure. In other words, if you can make your calling sure, you will also have made your election sure. We'll see that in the course of this study. So what is your calling then? And how is that made sure? Our shorter catechism is very helpful to us in this regard. It gives a very good definition of what is called effectual calling. By effectual calling, we're speaking of something that is spiritual, something that is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Question 31 asks this question, what is effectual calling? And the answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Let me read that again. And if you have a shorter catechism, 
uh, this would be a, a good season to look this question up, especially since our review of the larger catechism have been on hold since we haven't been printing bulletins of late. But let me read this again. Question 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Now we have to be very careful then in the matter of making our calling sure. In some Christian circles, making your calling sure amounts to the kind of experience that first may bring you very low, down to the depths of despair, you could say, in a sense of deep sorrow for your sins, and then it takes you very high by sending your soul soaring above the mountaintops into the heavenly places, as it were. Among the things that the Puritans were sometimes, and I think rightly, criticized for was their tendency to read too much into these subjective experiences. If you're familiar with John Bunyan, uh, author of Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan, in particular, is noted for a very prolonged struggle during which he wondered if he had been brought low enough and whether or not he felt deeply enough a sense of sorrow for his sins. Others may wonder whether or not their faith has been genuine enough or whether or not it's really just shallow and superficial. I think the Shorter Catechism answer gives us good and scriptural guidance as to whether or not you have had the experience of an effectual call. And, and, and so, ask yourself this question. Are you convinced of your sin and misery? In other words, are you convinced that even at your best, you come short of the glory of God? Are you convinced that you've transgressed God's laws? Have you ever experienced a sense, any kind of sense, of guilt for your sins? Do you see yourself as unworthy of the least of God's blessings, and indeed you see yourself as a worthy candidate for everlasting condemnation? Do you see yourself that way? Are you convinced of your sin and misery. I don't believe that the Westminster divines were simply, simply asking how miserable you felt, but whether or not you're convinced of the truth of God's word that tells you that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And beyond your being convinced of sin, are you convinced of Christ? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? In other words, that he's God, he is God come in the flesh. Are you convinced that he died for sinners, that he is the Savior of sinners? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? I love the way Paul puts this in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, when he writes that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth 
the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then, perhaps most importantly, have you embraced Jesus Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel? I know that you've heard of him. I know that you've learned of him. You hear and learn of him every week in church, and I'm sure that many of you hear and learn of him in your homes. <coughs> now, sometimes the preaching of Christ is referred to as a general call. A general call is what the preacher calls on you to do. He calls on you to embrace Christ. The question then becomes, have you embraced him? Have you received him? Have you called on him to save you? He is freely offered to you. Indeed, he freely offers himself to you. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, he says in Matthew 11 and verse 28, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Christ himself freely offers himself, and his offer is sincere. He desires people to come to him. Have you come to him by faith? When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved, Paul answered him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Acts 16.31 So that's the first thing that must be made sure, your calling. Anybody who has sat under my ministry for any time at all, has been called in the general sense of the word. I can say that with certainty because I know that I offer Jesus Christ. I offer him to you right now, this very moment today. I offer you Jesus Christ, and in offering him, I am simply reflecting his offering of himself. Will you embrace him? That's the thing you must make sure. Make sure you've responded to the call of the gospel. The next thing to make sure is not only your calling, but your election. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Now, election is a matter that's holy of God. Election is... God's choice of his people. In eternity past, in the counsel of the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, when the plan of salvation was being discussed, mapped out, if you will, the Father promised a people to his Son if his Son would do all that was necessary to redeem them, and if the Holy Spirit would apply that work to their hearts. 
Perhaps no other chapter in the Bible shows this arrangement between the Father and the Son more clearly than John chapter 17, the chapter that shows us Christ's high priestly prayer. So in John 17 and verse 6, Christ is speaking to his Father. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. Three verses later, verse 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Two verses later, we're in verse 11 now. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost. And then further down, yet again, verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now when you consider that election is all God's doing, it can seem to be unnerving at first because it means that the all-important question is not whether or not you've chosen Christ, but whether or not Christ has chosen you. And if it is strictly a matter of God's choice, then how is election something that I can make sure? How can I make it sure if it's holy of God? And it's at this point in the study that you need to consider that your calling and your election go hand in hand. Paul makes this very plain when he writes to the Romans in Romans 8, verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. You see the connection there? And whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. So you see the connection in those verses from Romans 8 between predestination and calling? Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. There is then no such thing as someone who is predestinated or chosen or elected who is not also called and called effectually. Neither is there any such thing as someone who is called who doesn't become convinced of his need of Christ who embraces Christ. I think one of the things that makes the doctrine of election scary to some Christians is their misunderstanding of a broader context in which election must be considered. And so they imagine a potential scenario in which a person who never showed any interest in Christ, 
who lived for sin and never embraced Christ as he was freely offered in the gospel, yet that person ends up in heaven somehow because he was chosen of God and elected to salvation. Or another scenario is imagined, which is also incorrect, which envisions a soul that called on Christ, that believed in Christ, who devoted his life to seeking after Christ, yet is left out of heaven because he was not chosen of God. Both scenarios are wrong and are mischaricatures of the doctrine of election. Election, you see, serves a purpose. In Romans 8.29, Paul states very clearly what predestination leads to. It leads to conformity to the image of Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Ephesians 1 and verse 5, Paul puts it this way, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, he states it this way, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Those who are elect, according to Paul, obtain salvation. They don't remain ignorant of salvation. They don't remain uh, ignorant of their need of salvation. They don't live their lives being oblivious to salvation. No, rather, they obtain salvation. So these are the two things, then, that must be made sure your calling and your election. And to make the one sure is to make the other sure. The two things go hand in hand. Well, let's proceed then quickly to look at the matter a little more closely. We've seen what it is that we're called to make sure. Let's think next on, and finally, just two points today. Secondly, how we make our calling and election sure. We've got an idea now of what it is we're to make sure. So point number two, I guess you could say, is the practical point. How do we do it? How can I make my calling and election sure? Look with me, if you will, in verse 1, 2 Peter 1, and notice who Peter is addressing his epistle to. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see who he's addressing? He makes that pretty plain, doesn't he? Here, then, is all the important uh, question when it comes to making your calling and election sure. Have you obtained this like precious faith that Peter speaks of. And this is just another way of asking the question, do you believe in Christ? Can you confess Christ the same way Peter did in Matthew chapter 16? 
in that chapter, we read it earlier, Christ asked his disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And after the disciples reported that there were varying opinions about who Christ was, some saying John the Baptist, some saying Elias, others saying Jeremiah or one of the prophets, Christ then becomes much more pointed and direct when he asks them, But whom say ye that I am? Forget the opinions of others now. I'm putting the question right to you, Christ says to them. Who do you say that I am? And it's at this point that Peter steps up and answers Christ's question by saying in verse 16, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, that's a good confession. And it's the right answer. And it's the identity that Christ had proven repeatedly by the things he taught and by the miracles he performed. The right answer to Christ's question, you would have thought, would have been the obvious answer to the question. And in a sense it was. But it wasn't what others were thinking. And especially was it not what Christ's adversaries were thinking. And so Christ says to Peter in verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Even though Peter's answer was true and was obvious, still, such is the state of rebellious sinners against God that they refuse the truth and they resist that which is obvious. You remember when Christ healed the blind man in John chapter 9? That's one of those chapters, you know, that zooms in on one of Christ's miracles, and it, it, it brings you up close to that miracle by giving you a very detailed account of it. And in that detailed account, you find the, the Pharisees interrogating the man that was healed of his blindness. What did he do to you? You know, what exactly did he do to you? And when they get no satisfaction in their interrogation of the healed blind man, then they go to the man's parents. Uh, that's always struck me as one of the more humorous statements in the Gospels. Are you sure your son was born blind? Can you imagine a parent that wouldn't be sure of a child born blind, who had been blind now for many years? And when they don't hear what they want to hear from the parents, then they interrogate the healed blind man again. And the whole time, they are in a desperate search to deny the obvious because they know what the obvious leads to. It leads to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the very truth that Peter confessed in Matthew chapter 16. So when Peter says to Peter, or when Christ says to Peter in verse 17, that he's blessed because Peter didn't come to that conclusion in the power of his own wisdom or spirituality, 
oh no, left to himself, apart from God, Peter would have done the same thing the Pharisees in John 9 had done. He would have searched for ways to deny the obvious. But Peter was not searching for ways to deny the obvious. Instead, he was willing to confess the obvious. And so Christ makes known to Peter and to us that the reason Peter could make that confession was on account of the grace of God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Credit him, Peter. Don't take credit yourself as if... uh, you possess some semblance of godliness or spirituality that other men don't have. No, you're like all the others. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness unto him. So, Peter, it wasn't your wisdom. It wasn't flesh and blood. It was by the grace of God. Now, coming back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, and noting the people that are addressed by Peter in this epistle, you can see at once that Peter is addressing those whose experiences had been the same as his. He's addressing those that had obtained like precious faith through the same means, by the grace of God. In other words, he's addressing those that could make the same confession about Christ that Peter himself had made. So when it comes to the matter of making your calling and election sure, the crucial question to consider is this. Can you make the same confession pertaining to Christ that Peter confessed? Do you believe that he is the Christ? That he is, in fact, the long-promised Messiah? spoken of back early in the book of Genesis, the Messiah that was destined to come, whose heel would be bruised, but who himself would crush the head of the devil? And if you can answer that question by saying yes to it, yes, I do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's more than just a good teacher. He's more than just a prophet that can work miracles. He is the Savior of sinners. If you can make that confession, then I say to you the same thing that Christ said to Peter, you are blessed. Because flesh and blood did not enable you to make such a confession But by the grace of God and by the work of the Spirit of the Father, you have been enabled in God's grace to make that confession. That becomes then a pretty strong bastion of assurance, doesn't it? I do believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. I could not make that confession if left to myself. I could not make that confession apart from a powerful resurrection-wrought work upon my soul. Uh, Nor could you, nor could anybody. And in making such a confession, it can be said of you, too, that you have obtained like precious faith. It's the same faith 
that the apostles had. It's the same faith as the faith of those who died martyrs' deaths. It's the same faith as those who through the ages of church history have manifested by their lives that they believe in Christ. And it is indeed called by Peter in this verse, precious faith. It's precious because it doesn't come naturally to rebellious sinners. Saving faith, you see, is a gift from God. So again, in the matter of making your calling and election sure, have you obtained this like precious faith? One more thing we must note about this obtained precious faith, and then I'm done. This precious faith is not only something that is obtained, but Peter also makes it plain that this faith is something that you add to. You obtain it, and you add things to it. Look with me now in 2 Peter 1, a familiar section, I'm sure, to many of you. These virtues that are listed from verses 5 to 7. He writes, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. These seven virtues, you could say, correspond to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I suppose it would be a worthwhile study to note the connection sometime. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. For if these things be in you and abound, Peter says in verse 8, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you add these virtues to your faith, and I've got to be very careful here because I don't want to be misunderstood when it comes to adding something to your faith. You are not adding anything to your faith with the hopes of gains, gaining something from God because of your adding. Well, that's a crucial thing that has to be understood rightly, or you'll be striving perhaps for the right thing, but in the wrong way. No, it is because you have obtained this like precious faith that has brought salvation to your soul that you would have the desire to add these virtues to your faith. These virtues will, in a sense, come naturally to the Christian that has obtained like precious faith. If he is lacking in these virtues, it's because he fails to keep something in mind that he needs to constantly keep in mind And so Peter gives an explanation for those who may be lacking. He writes, But he that lacketh these things, these virtues that he's just listed, he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He's blind, Peter says. 
He can't see afar off. He can only see the things that the carnal eye sees. And the way to resharpen your spiritual vision when it grows dim is to visit anew and afresh the cross of Jesus Christ. I suppose you could take that statement and you can take this entire message this morning and call it a pre-message, a preparation message, if you will, for the remembrance of Christ next week when we meet around this table. That's one of the purposes that the communion table serves you now, to keep these things in remembrance, not to forget who Jesus is, not to forget what Jesus has done. Because if you grow careless in that regard, and you are not constantly reminded, and you're not constantly filled and thrilled and awed with joy and reverence at what Christ has done, you're not going to add these things to your faith because you will have forgotten or taken for granted or lost your appreciation for the blessings you've been blessed with and the high price of those blessings. Remember who Christ is. Remember what Christ has accomplished. Remember the high price he's paid to redeem you. And by remembering these things, you will gain the motivation. It will be like lighting or relighting the fire in your heart to add these specified virtues to your faith. And in the process, you'll also go a long way in making your calling and election sure. Now, in closing out this study this morning, let me point out that when it comes to adding these virtues to your faith, and when it comes to making your calling and election sure, these are things that must be engaged in with due diligence. And Peter makes that very plain. Beside this, giving diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, etc. This is not something to be done carelessly, half-heartedly. It's something to be done diligently. So in our text, verse 10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Oh, may the Lord help us then to apply ourselves to these virtues and to our calling and election with a wholehearted effort and not with half-hearted negligence. May we indeed make our calling and election sure and in the process gain great assurance that our salvation is true and that it's real. Let's close then in prayer. And as we bow in prayer now, I'm offering Jesus Christ to you again, anew and, infre- anew and afresh. Embrace him as he's offered in the gospel. If you never have, embrace him to the saving of your soul. O oh Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, We do acknowledge the truth of thy word that salvation is all of the Lord.
And yet, Lord, you've planned it and executed it in such a way that we are able to know, to know with assurance that we have gained that saving interest in Jesus Christ. I pray, O Lord, that thou wilt indeed help us to apply ourselves with due diligence to these things, that we may read our titles to heaven clearly, and that our lives will be transformed in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.